A Transmutation of Muddles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. A Transmutation of Muddles by Horace Brown Fife. The rugged little stellar scout ship flared down to the surface of Kappa Orionis Seven, about a mile from the aboriginal village. The pilot, Lieutenant Eric Harohiku, scorched an open field, but pointed out to Lewis Maine that he had been careful to disturb neither woodland nor shoreline. The Kappans are touchy about those, Judge, he explained. They fish a lot, as you'd guess from all these shallow seas, and they pick fruit in the forests, but they don't farm much. No use provoking trouble, Maine approved. It's a long way from Rigel. It's a longer way from Saul, said the pilot. Don't I know it, boy. If it weren't, I'd be just another retired space captain, quietly struggling with my ranch on Rigel 9. As it is, to get the grant, I had to remain on call as an arbitrator. Somebody has to settle these things, said Herohiku. There's not much law way out here, except what the Space Force can apply. Well, if you'll excuse me, sir, I'll have them get out the helicopter and take us over to the village. Let me see that last message again, before you go, Maine requested. The pilot extracted a sheet from his clipboard and handed it to Maine as he left. Maine studied the text with little pleasure. Terran Space Force headquarters on Rigel nine, wished to inform him that the long-awaited envoy from Terra to Kappa, Orionis, seven, not only had arrived, but had departed two days behind Maine. It was hoped, the communication continued, that nothing would interfere with the desired objective of coming to some friendly agreement with the Kappans that would permit Terran use of the planet as a base for spaceships. The envoy, of course, was prepared to offer trade inducements and various other forms of help to the semi-civilized natives. Maine was requested to lay whatever groundwork he could. In my spare time, no doubt, he reflected, I'm to settle this silly business anyway at all, as long as the natives get their way. But has anybody told the government about insurance companies? If it costs money or a lawsuit, will they back me up? He felt himself to be in a ridiculous dilemma. The Kappans were reported to have seized a Terran spaceship as it landed to trade. Naturally, the captain had squawked for help. He claimed he had crashed. His insurance company thought otherwise. The Kappans seemed to have some entirely different idea in mind. Maine had been summoned into action to render a decision, after the rough-and-ready system of these settlements on the surface of Terra's sphere of explored space. Regretfully, he made his way now to the cubbyhole allowed him on the cramped scout, where he changed to a more formal tunic of bright blue he hoped would look impressive to native eyes. By the time he was ready, the helicopter was waiting. He and Harohiku entered, 
and the crewmen at the controls took off for the scene of the dispute. Arriving over the village, they hovered a few minutes while Haruhiku studied the lay of the land. The lieutenant had been to this world before, long enough to pick up some of the language and customs, so Maine was content to follow his advice about landing a little way off from a spaceship that towered outside the village. They came down about a hundred yards away, between a rutted sort of road and a long hut covered by a curved, thatched roof. "'They're expecting us,' said Haruhiku, gesturing at the group before the hut. It consisted of half a dozen humans and several of the Kappan natives. The latter, naturally, caught Maine's eye first. The most imposing individual among them stood about five feet tall. The planet being of about the same mass as Terra, the Kappan probably weighed over two hundred and fifty pounds. He was a rugged biped with something saurian in his ancestry, for his skin was scaled, and bony plates grew into a low crown upon his long skull. His arms and legs were heavy and bowed, with joints obscured by thick muscles and loose skin. Maine was struck by the fancy that the Kappan's color, a blend of brown and olive, was that of a small dragon who had achieved a good suntan. A yellow kilt was the main article of attire, although he wore a few decorations of polished bone. One of the Terrans stepped forward. He wore a semi-military uniform. "'I suppose you're Louis Maine,' he asked. "'Right,' answered Maine. "'You would be Captain Voorhis of the Gemsbok?' "'Check. This here is Emok. He's more or less chief of the village, or tribe, or whatever you want to call it.' Maine found his gaze sinking into cat-like slits of jet and a pair of huge orange eyes shaded by massive brow ridges. The native made some statements in a clicking language that had a harsh, choppy rhythm. He welcomes you to Kappa, Haruhiku interpreted. He hopes the gods will not be displeased. What a warm welcome, commented Maine. Have you been getting along that well, Captain Voorhees? Just about said the spacer. One of my boys knows a few words. Rest of the time, we make signs. I gotta admit, they ain't been too unfriendly. But they have seized your ship. You're damn right. That insurance guy they sent out don't see it that way, though. Where's this representative of the Belt Insurance Company? asked Maine. Milan? His ship landed over on the other side of the village, about half a mile. He ought to be along soon. Must have seen you land. Maine wondered whether it were necessary to await the arrival of the insurance adjuster before asking any questions. To cover his hesitation, he turned to take his first good look at the hull of the Gemsbok. What did they think they're doing? he demanded, staring. The Gemsbok was, or had been, an ungraceful, thick starship on the verge of aging into scrap. Towering here between the village and the huge, bluish-green leaves of the Kappan forest, she was in the process of being transformed into a planet-bound object of a certain weird grace. A framework was being constructed about the hull by a swarm of natives. 
They had reached halfway up the ship, which served as a central column. Much of the exterior appeared to be a network of strangely curved sections of wood that had been given a high polish. Maine suspected the greenish highlights were reflections of the forest color. Bone, said Voorhees succinctly. They collect it from things they catch in the sea. Main supports of timber, of course, built to fit the hull. The fish here grow very large, put in Haruhiku. If you could call them fish, that is. I once saw them butchering what looked more like a dinosaur. Main realized that the bone framework formed a sort of curtain wall. At the lower levels, some of the natives seemed to be experimenting with a coating of wet leaves, which they were molding to the wall. They've soaked them in something they boil out of fish parts, his pilot explained, like the village roofs. When it dries, it's pretty hard, even waterproof. The stink never dries out. But what do they have in their bony little brains? asked Maine. Just what is that mess supposed to be? A temple, believe it or not, answered Voorhees. They tell me I set her down on land sacred to the great god Meeg. Maine looked at Haro Hiku. Oh, come on now. I came all the way from... He stopped as he noticed the pilot's grave expression. Oh, that sort of thing could be serious, I guess. He imagined he had seen the chief, Emak, coming alert at the mention of the local god. Maine sighed. It was going to be a long day. He was saved for the time being by a hail from the direction of the village. A procession was approaching along the set of ruts between Maine and the ship. The place of honor appeared to be occupied by a two-wheeled cart of crude but massive design. Upon it rode a cap'n driver, two cap'ns with spears and the look of official guards, and a terran with a death grip upon the side railing. A brace of truculent beasts of frighteningly saurian mien shuffled ponderously along in the loose harness. From time to time, one or the other would stumble over a turn in his rut and emit a menacing rumble, as if he suspected his teammate of causing the misstep. Before and behind this conveyance marched a guard of honor of Cap'n warriors. The rear contingent kept close to the cart but the advance party had opened a noticeable gap between themselves and the hulking team. The procession halted. The soldier in charge raised his spear in salute to Emak, and the shaken Terran was assisted to dismount. He introduced himself to Maine as Robert Malan. "'Let's go over to the hut they made for us and sit down,' suggested Voorhees. Malan, a tall, gloomy blonde, whose civilian suit seemed a trifle formal for the surroundings, acceded gratefully. He mopped the dust from his long face and watched the cart being turned around. The procession moved off in the direction of the village, the advance guard stepping out especially smartly, and Maine began to get his conference arranged. He learned that the evicted crew of the Gemsbach had been living in the hut nearby. Before it stood a long table with benches, all evidently knocked together from recently felled timber. 
Mellon was given credit for this by Voorhis, since before the arrival of the insurance adjuster and his crew, no power tools had been available to the men from the Gemsbach. Maine took a place at the end of the table. Some of the Gemsbach's crew came out of the hut to watch. Most of the captain warriors attending the chief took up stations between the table and the ship, in a manner suggesting long habit. Maine guessed that attempts had been made to re-enter the ship. He put Haruhiku at his right hand to translate, should it be necessary. Melan and Voorhis sat at his left, their backs to the hut. To the other side of the table, Emak brought two Kappans, who were explained to Maine as being the tribal high priest Igrilik and Kanox, who represented a sort of district overlord. I meant to land up by their city, Voorhis put in, but we hit some bad winds up in the stratosphere. We got knocked around a bit in the storm, and set down where we could. Well, tell me about the details, said Maine. I want to get this straight from the start, if I can. By the way, Lieutenant Haruhiku, explain to the chief that a special envoy is on the way, that we want his friendship, and that he will be dealt with fairly. He waited out the exchange of choppy speech between the pilot and Emak. He says he is sure he will be fairly dealt with, reported Haruhiku. I wonder what he meant by that, murmured Maine. If we make a deal here, and thereby with his overlord, will that cover enough territory to be official? As much as you can get together anywhere on this world, sir. Maine nodded, then turned to Captain Voorhees. Now about this so-called crash, he prompted. Well, there was this storm, like I said. Trouble was we didn't expect to hit it, and, well... Somebody took it in his head to blow some of the fuel tanks for a crash landing. That's why I'm not claiming anything on the fuel, he finished, turning to Malan. We are perfectly willing to pay on that item, replied the insurance man. Anyhow, continued Borges, I sat down here where we saw the open spot, and then, of course, we were stuck with nothing to lift off with. It looked all right. We'd unload our goods, and if the local crowd couldn't use them all, why, they'd pass the rest on at a profit to themselves. So we come out to Palaver, and then they won't let us go back in the ship. We were just lucky my comm man had sent out a landing report when it looked like we piled up, or the Space Force patrol never would have heard of us. Was there any trouble? asked Maine. Any unnecessary hostility? Voorhis considered, rubbing the back of his head thoughtfully. Well, I suppose, looking at it their way, they could have been a lot rougher. A couple of punches got thrown, and one of my boys got a spear busted over his head. But mostly they acted, well, maybe more like cops than cannibals. Just enforcing the native laws, eh? Voorhis did not swallow that quite so graciously. He did not know or care what the local laws might be, but he thought it suspicious in the extreme that he should have plopped down exactly upon the spot chosen by the natives for a temple. So do they have to use my ship to hang it on? He finished plaintively. 
The company is in agreement with you there, Captain, Malin put in. You see, Judge, our point is that nothing is really lost or seriously damaged, neither ship nor cargo. They are merely being withheld from their rightful owner, and we believe that puts the responsibility for recovery upon the Terran government. Captain Voorhees has our entire sympathy. Yeah, said Voorhees, and if I get my head sliced off trying to get at that undamaged cargo, you'll come to my funeral. I'd say it's a loss. Now, gentlemen, interrupted Maine, let me get on with this. Both of you, I'm sure, realize that I'm not a lawyer, in spite of being a special judge. If the colonies way out here had enough lawyers to spare, I certainly wouldn't be sticking my head into this. Nevertheless, any decision I make here will be regarded as legally binding by the government of Rigel Nine, so let us remain level-headed. Very well, Judge, said Malan. Here are the figures on— Please round them off, said Maine. If I have to listen to a long list of Cynthic credits, I'll probably go off to see what kind of beer they brew here. You wouldn't like it, muttered Voorhees staring sourly at the village. No doubt, grinned Maine. Mellon swallowed and returned to an inner pocket a sheaf of papers he had withdrawn. Speaking very loosely, he went on, as if hating to do anything loosely. The coverage was about as follows. For the Jemsbach herself, two million. But that was really a nominal figure, accorded as a sort of courtesy. Otherwise, at her true worth, the authorities would hardly have permitted Captain Voorhees to take her into space. "'Get on with it,' urged Maine, to forestall any wrangle. "'Er, yes. Then on the cargo, the purchase cost of two hundred thousand credits.' Voorhees visibly flinched, and began to acquire a ruddy hue. "'And finally, on the fuel load, the cost price of three hundred thousand. Of course, Judge, there are detailed clauses as to the normal use of fuel. He was actually insured against defects, premature explosions, accidental loss, etc. Maine did some addition in his head. So your company, he said aloud, is prepared to pay two and a half million for the loss sustained by Captain Voorhees. What seems to be wrong with that? Both men began to talk, but Melan, struggling less with temper, got the lead. Actually, he said, we feel liable for only three hundred thousand. Now it will get tough, thought Maine. He silently awaited elucidation. The combined stares of all parties, including the enigmatic glance of Emok, calmed the spluttering Voorhees. Melan continued. In the first place, the true value of the ship, even if we consider her to be incapacitated, which we do not, is only about one hundred and fifty thousand. "'She's worth more than that as scrap!' bellowed Voorhees. "'No, Captain, just about that. It is exactly how we valued her. Do you have any idea, Judge, of how old that crock is?' "'Let's not go into that just yet,' suggested Maine. As to the fuel, 
said Malan. I am willing, as a gesture of good will, to stick my company's neck out, and mine with it, you may be sure, and honor a full claim. Even though he used about half the fuel getting here? asked Maine. We'll ignore that. We admit that he is out of fuel, and we want to— You want to give me a moon and take a star, said Voorhees. Just a minute. Maine held up his hand. That's the ship and the fuel. What about the cargo? Why, as to that, Judge, we do not admit that it is lost. It is right over there, easily accessible. We consider it more the job of the Space Force to restore rightful possession than it is the responsibility of the company to reimburse Captain Voorhees for the inflated value he sets upon it. I begin to see murmured Maine. You can't stick each other, so you're out to slip me the bill. That aroused a babble of denials. Maine eventually made himself heard and demanded to know how the spacer's evaluation differed from Malin's. Voorhees pulled himself together, glowering at the insurance man. In the first place, he growled, I don't want his lousy payment for fuel. I'd said I'd take the blame for that, and I will. On the ship, well, maybe she ain't worth two million. Maybe she ain't been for a few years now. Malin made a show of counting on his fingers. But they charge me premiums by that figure, and I say they ought to pay by that figure. But can you prove she's a total loss, Captain? asked Maine. Voorhees grimaced and spat upon the ground. Try to get nearer, Judge. You'll get proof fast enough. Well, about the cargo, then. That's where he's gouging me, exploded Voorhees. The idea of using the cost as of loading on Rigel 9. Hell, you know, the margin of profit there is in trading on these new planets. Twenty to one, at least. I figured to lift off with... Four million worth of ores, gems, curios, and what not. So your point is that the mere transportation of the goods through space to this planet increased their value. What about that, Mr. Malin? Malin shifted uncomfortably on his bench. Maine would have liked to change his own position, but feared splinters. There is an element of truth in that, admitted Malin. Still, it would be rash to expect such a return every time a tramp spaceship lands to swap with some aboriginal easy marks. I suppose, said Maine, that our orange-eyed friends speak no Terran. I hope not, exclaimed Borges. Well, anyway, Mellon said after a startled pause, how can we be expected to pay off on hopes? He wants the paper figure for the ship, but he refuses the paper figure for the cargo. Maine shrugged. He turned to Haruhiku. If Captain Voorhees and Mr. Mellon don't mind, Lieutenant, I'd like to get the chief's view of all this. Ha! grunted Voorhees, clapping both hands to his head. Mellon contented himself with rolling his eyes skyward. With Haruhiku translating, Maine began to get acquainted with the Kappans. The visitor from the neighboring city chose mostly to listen attentively, 
but Igrilik, the priest, occasionally leaned over to whisper sibilantly into Emok's recessed ear. Maine fancied he saw a resemblance between the two, despite Igrilik's professional trappings. A long robe of rough material that had been dyed in stripes and figures of several crude colors, and a tall cap to which were attached a number of pairs of membranous wings. The first thing that Maine learned was that the Jimsbach was not a spaceship. It was a symbol, a sign sent to the Kappans by the great god Meeg. And why did he send it? asked Maine. He had sent it as a sign that he was impatient with his children. They had vowed him a temple. They had set aside the necessary land, and yet they had not begun the work. Is that why they're all over there, slaving away so feverishly? It was indeed the reason. After all, Meeg was the god of the inner moon, the one that passed so speedily across the sky. If he could guide the stranger's ship directly to his own plot of ground, he might just as easily have caused it to land in the center of the village. They had seen the flames that attended the landing. Could the honored chief from the stars blame them for heeding the warning? I see their point, muttered Maine resignedly. Well, maybe we can talk sense about the cargo. Tell them there was much in the holds that would make their lives richer. Tools, gems, fine cloth. Give them the story, lieutenant. This time, Emok conferred with the high priest. It developed that the cargo was a sacred gift to be used, or not, as the god Meeg might subsequently direct. The chief meant no insult. The Kappans realized that Voorhees and his crew were no demons, but starmen, such as had often brought valuable goods to trade. The Kappans had not sought to harm or sacrifice them, had they? This was because they were both welcome as visitors and respected as instruments of Meeg. Emok wished to be fair. The starmen might think they had lost by the divine mission. Very well. They would be granted land, good land, with forests for hunting and shoreline for fishing. But go near the temple, they should not. Could I get in to inspect the cargo? asked Maine. Haruhiku took this up with the Kappans, who softened, but did not yield. The best I can get, Judge, said the pilot, is that they wish it were possible, but only those who serve the purposes of Meeg may enter. They would look at it that way, sighed Maine. Let's leave it at that, until we can think this over some more. It's time for a lunch break, anyway. He and Haruhiku were flown back to the scout ship. Maine brooded silently most of the way. Voorhees thought he was entitled to about six million credits for ship and cargo. Malin thought half a million for the ship and fuel would be stretching it. Maine foresaw that he would have to knock heads. The two of them lunched in the pilot's cabin, with hardly room to drop a spoon. Except for companionship, Maine would as soon have eaten standing in the galley. He considered the vast area of the planet's land surface. Would it be wiser for the envoy to land elsewhere? What sort of ties were there between tribes? Loose, the pilot told him. Still, word gets around, with no great mountain or ocean barriers. 
They've split into groups, but there is a lot of contact. So if the Space Force should seize the Gemsbach, they'll all hear about it. Within a few weeks, sir. That kind of news has wings on any world. I think we could take her for you, but we might do some damage. The size of a scout crew doesn't lend itself to hand-to-hand -hand brawls. And if you sling a couple of torpedoes at the Cap'n village, you'll probably wipe it out, said Maine thoughtfully. Give the story a month to spread, and no Terran would be trusted anywhere on the planet. Hmm, hardly practical. There would also be a chance of damaging the Gemsbach. Actually, Eric, I'd hardly care if you blew her into orbit, with Voorhees and Malin riding the fans. But I'm supposed to spread sweetness and light around here, not scraps and parts of spaceships. He gnawed moodily upon a knuckle, but saw no way to escape, putting up some government money. Soaking the company would just make them appeal instead of Voorhees. This Meeg, he said to change the subject, how important is he? Haruhiku considered a moment before replying. They have a whole mess of gods, like most primitive societies. Meeg is pretty important. I think he has special significance to this tribe. You know, like some ancient Terran cities had a special patron. He's the god of that little moon? Maine asked. Oh, more than that, I think. Really the god of speed. A message bearer for the other divinities. There always seems to be one in every primitive mythology. Yes, murmured Maine. Let's see. One parallel would be the ancient Terran Hermes, wouldn't it? Something like that, agreed Harahiku. I'm a little vague on the subject, sir. At least he isn't one of the bloodthirsty ones. That helps, sighed Maine. But not enough. He got a message blank from the pilot. With some labor, he composed a request to Terran headquarters on Rigel 9, for authorization to spend two million credits on goodwill preparations for the Terran Cap'n Treaty Conference. It sounds almost diplomatic, he told himself, before having the message sent. The waiting period that followed was more to be blamed upon headquarters pussyfooting than upon the subspace transmission. When an answer finally came, it required a further exchange of messages. Maine's last communique might have been boiled down to, But I need it! The last reply granted provisional permission to spend the sum mentioned, but gleaming between the lines like the sweep of a revolving beacon was a strong intimation that Maine had better not hope to charge the item to good will. The budget just was not made that way, the hint concluded. It's due to get dark soon, isn't it? he asked Haruhiku, crumpling the final message into a side pocket. I don't believe I'll resume the talks till morning. Maybe my head will function again by then. In the morning, one of the scout's crew again took the pilot and Maine to the meeting by helicopter. Maine spent part of the trip mulling over a message Haruhiku had received. The spaceship, Diamond Belt, could be expected to arrive in orbit about the planet later the same day, 
bearing Special Envoy J.P. MacDonald. The captain, having been informed of Harahiko's presence, requested landing advice. "'I told him what I know,' said the pilot. "'We can give him a beam down, of course, unless you think we should send him somewhere else.' "'Well, let's see how this goes,' said Maine. "'They seem to be waiting for us down there.' They landed to find Voorhees, Melan, and the native officialdom gathered at the hut facing the new temple. After exchanging greetings, they sat down at the table, as they had the day before. "'All right, gentlemen,' said Maine to the two Terrans. "'You win. The government is going to have to put something in the pot. I want to make it as little as possible, so let us have no more nonsense about the true value of ship or cargo as they stand. They looked startled at his tone. Maine went on before they could recover. The object I have in mind, if it seems at all possible, is to put Captain Voorhees back in business without costing Mr. Malin his job. Now let's put our heads together on that problem and worry about justifying ourselves later. The most difficult part was to convince Voorhees to surrender his dream of fantastic profits, but sometime before Maine got hoarse, the captain was made to see that he could not have his cake and eat it too. Malin agreed that he might pay the paper value of the Jumsbach, if he could pay likewise for the cargo, in which case he would admit a loss. After all, a spaceship anchored by a temple might reasonably be termed unspaceworthy. He would take over the cargo and cut his losses by allowing the government to buy it at two million. "'You want to come with me the next trip?' invited Voorhees when he heard this. "'If that's how you cut loose, we'll make a fortune.' "'Well, there it is,' said Mang, straightening up to ease his aching back. He must have been leaning tensely over the table longer than he had thought. The captain gets two and a half million. Mr. Malin gets off with paying only half a million, and you've stuck me for the rest. Congratulations, Judge, said Malin. You now own a ship and cargo which I presume you will present to the captains. How can he? demanded Voorhees. They figure they own it already. We'll worry about that later, said Maine. You will? Voorhees guffawed. I hope you get some credit out of it. Haruhiku interrupted to inform Maine that the Kappans, who had been interested if bewildered listeners, had invited the Terrans to a small feast. I translated enough to let them understand there would be no attempt to disturb their temple building, he explained. They now feel they owe us hospitality. Good, that's something, said Maine. I'll tell you what else will be something, grunted Voorhees. The food. The assemblage repaired to the Kappen village. The Terrans, though it took some doing, survived the feast. Maine thought it best not to inquire into the nature of the dishes served. Emak was evidently determined to display his village's finest hospitality, so the Terrans even tried the cap and beer. Maine absorbed enough to get used to it. Or did it absorb me, he wondered. 
Igorelik's beginning to look almost human. Eventually carts were brought, and they rode bumpily out to admire progress made on the temple. A fresh breeze helped Maine to remember that it was now late afternoon, and he had yet to settle one matter with Emok. When they arrived at the site, crewmen from the Gemsbach saw fit to take Voorhees in charge and carry him into their hut. Maine sank down at the table outside, watching Malin grope to a place beside him. He noticed that Harahiko's helicopter pilot handed him a message as soon as the lieutenant alighted. That will be from the diamond belt, Maine guessed. He eyed Malin with some amusement. The insurance man stared very quietly at the board beneath his elbows. His complexion held a tint of green. Even Emok, plodding ponderously up, lowered himself to a bench with a sigh. The high priest seemed less affected by the celebration, and Maine was proud when Harahiko walked over with his normal bland alertness. "'They're getting near?' he asked. "'Doing breaking circles,' reported the pilot. "'I sent an order for the scout to give them a beam. "'There may still be time to send them somewhere else.' "'One more try here first. Maine decided. Tell Emok we want to straighten out some confusion about Meeg and the cargo. Haruhiku permitted himself a small shrug and translated. Emok aroused himself to a show of interest, while Igrilik turned a suspicious orange stare upon Maine. The latter strove to frame in his mind an argument that would strike them as logical. Tell him, he instructed, that we believe this Meeg was known on Terra, but by another name. Then describe the mythical Hermes and see what he says. Haruhiku began a conversation that lasted several minutes. Igrilik, as an authority, obviously felt moved to deliver a lengthy opinion. At last, the pilot turned to Maine. They say we are to be congratulated, he reported. Is that all? Well, they do seem a bit more friendly. I was going to try drawing a picture of that famous statue, with the winged heels and hat, but it would never match their own conception. Igrilik asked if you claim belief in Meeg. Avoid that, said Maine. Now, do they know about ship communications? They are aware that it is done, said Harahiku. After all, they just saw me send a message to the scout over the helicopter screen. Good. Point out to them that the Gemsbach also has such equipment. Haruhiko engaged in another long talk. The cabins began to show signs of uneasiness at the end. They remained silent. And that, therefore, added Maine, the Terran who served this machine should rank in their eyes as a servant of Meeg just as much as Igrilic. The cargo in the ship was no more his than a message belongs to the messenger bearing it. The pilot put this into Cap'n, with gestures. And furthermore, said Maine, before it could be suggested that the owner might be Meeg, what I have arranged here with Malin and Voorhees is that the cargo now belongs to all of the Terran people. Emok began to scowl, an impressive contortion on a broad, olive-cap'n visage. 
Maine hurried on. This being the case, the Cappins have absolutely no right to deny us the privilege of contributing all these goods to the glory of their temple. Oh, boy, grunted Haruhiko. He rattled off the translation. Maine watched it hit home. Igrillic leaned over to peer at him unbelievingly. Emok seemed to have difficulty in focusing his glowing eyes on the Terran. There were, of course, requests for clarification. Maine left the repetitions to the pilot. In the end, Emok arose and embraced him, a startling action that left Maine feeling introspectively of his ribs. Igrillic called out something to the bodyguard attending the chief causing Maine to repress a shudder at the flashing display of big cap and teeth. He assumed that a smile was a humanoid constant. Haruhiku's pilot approached with a new message. Now they have to land near here, in half an hour or less, said the spacer. There's just one more thing, Maine told him. Voorhees is satisfied. Melin, look, he's gone to sleep on the table is relieved. The Cappins are friendly, and J.P. MacDonald will be happy when he lands. Now I have to get myself off the hook for two million. He turned to the Gemsbach crewman loitering before the hut. Who was the communications man? he demanded. A lean, freckled youth with a big nose admitted to the distinction. Maine draped an arm about his shoulders and told him he was back in business. Say to them, he instructed Haruhiku, that if they are to learn how to use the equipment Meeg has provided for their temple, they must not delay one minute in taking our friend here into the ship. Uh, make that temple. He will show them how a spaceship is called down from the skies. Haruhiku gave him a straight-faced glance that was a masked guffaw. He translated, and orders began to be shouted back and forth among the cappins, all the way to the topmost level of the construction. The lieutenant called his pilot. I'll have him flash the scout in order to monitor the Gemsbach and transfer landing control as soon as they hear her on the air, he explained. Maine nodded. He clutched the arm of the Gemsbach operator, who was being urged away by Igrelik and a group of warrior escorts. Just one thing, son, he shouted over the babble. Forget about the ship's call sign. You go on the air calling yourself Kappa Orionis Central Control. Kappa Orionis Central? repeated the youth distressfully. You've got it, said Maine, and shoved him on his way. He turned to Haruhiku. The last thing to do is to send the helicopter for some paint. I don't care if it isn't dry when the diamond belt touches down. I want a sign over the door of this hut. A sign? Make it read, Spaceport Number 1. Two million is cheap enough for buying a spaceport already in operation. There won't be any trouble, since the Cappins promised the land. Everyone seemed to be running somewhere. Maine wiped his face with a handkerchief and sat down beside Malin who looked comfortable enough with his head on the table. From inside the hut, Maine could hear snores that must have Boris as a source. The rest of the Gemsbach crewmen had followed the crowd 
to the control tower that was also a temple. After a while, Harahiko returned and sat down across from Melon. Magnificent, Judge, he said. We might even get away with it. Of course we will, said Maine, gazing at Melon and listening to Voorhees. After all, Hermes was the god of thieves, too. End of A Transmutation of Muddles by Horace Brown Fife